You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 21st of February, 2024. Is the United States trying to wind Israel slowly in? Has the United States not yet made its point about Julian Assange? And London anticipates possibly its oddest, certainly its thinnest, hotel. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Julie Norman and Charles Hecker will discuss the day's big stories and we'll hear from the EU's senior-most military officer as Europe contemplates the strategic consequences of a possible restoration of Donald Trump. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by Julie Norman, Associate Professor of Politics and International Relations at UCL, and by Charles Hecker, Senior Partner at Control Risks, currently on leave to write a book about Russian business. Charles, we've done the or is he jokes so many times, but you were you were just showing me in the waiting room that the cover has been made. It must be nearly a thing. It's going to happen. Things are starting to get very real. Mm. Uh, and so it's six weeks now until I have to to turn in the manuscript, and I'm feeling a bit busy. <laughs> uh, are you feeling confident that in six weeks' time you will, in fact, be submitting the manuscript? I mean, come on, Charles, it's, it's a book deadline. They're not like real deadlines. <laughs> I, I, I don't know how much choice I have in the matter. I mean, there's this, there's this <laughs> tiny thing called a contract standing between me and the publisher, and I think that they're quite happy to insist on the terms and conditions, and I think I better put up. Uh. They're no fun, those guys. Um, uh, Julie, you have recently been travelling yet again, this time to Switzerland. Yes, just a very short trip. So big shout out to my godsons who live there. So I, Geneva, I will say, a lot of people are kind of ho-hum about, but I love having an excuse to go there. Like, it's beautiful, the coffee is good, my friends are there, the boys are there, it's a good time. There is a nice lake. Yes, yes, and a very nice fountain. So. And, the, and the old city up on the hilly bit is, is quite pleasant. It is, and I like chocolate, so it's a good place for me to go. The last time I was went there, I also went to an ice hockey match. I saw the, the local Geneva team at home, and as is always the case when I watch ice hockey, had literally no idea what was going on. But the fans were getting terribly excited, so I assume it was going well. As a former Montrealer, I will definitely check that out next time. You absolutely should. Um, but we will start today at the United Nations, where, as confidently anticipated, the United States yesterday vetoed a Security Council resolution demanding an immediate ceasefire in Gaza. The motion had been proposed by Algeria, arguably not a country ideally placed to lecture anybody else about quelling an Islamist insurrection with undue force, but clearly the 1990s are a long time ago. The US did, however, pitch a resolution of its own calling for a temporary ceasefire in Gaza, along with the release of Hamas hostages and delivery of aid. However, However, Israel dismissed even this watered-down entreaty as ethically rather reprehensible. Um, Julie, first of all, how big a thing... It's not as big a thing as, obviously, a lot of the rest of the Security Council or, indeed, the UN might have wished. 
But the US going even this far where Israel is concerned is not nothing, is it? It's true. I mean, for the US, this is a significant step to use the word ceasefire in a resolution. The US is, of course, qualifying this as a temporary ceasefire, not permanent, as most of the Security Council wants. They're also saying when it is practical to do do so, and also, of course, um, linking it to the release of hostages, which the uh, Algerian resolution did not. So there are some key differences, um, but the fact that the US is using this language is the U.S. is kind of in the middle of going too far for Israel, but not far enough for most of the rest of the world right now. But it was a big step. Well, indeed so. Um, Charles, what happens, though? And this is this is not the first indication at all that the patience of the United States, in particular of U.S. President Joe Biden, is running rapidly out. But what happens if Israel won't take the hint? Um, they're already giving indications that they're quite reluctant to take the hint. I think there's going to be a certain amount of brinkmanship between the United States and Israel. Um, And both countries are in a really difficult position because the relationship between the United States and Israel is one of the the greatest constants in in foreign policy in general. I mean, I I remember my very first international relations class as a freshman at university. um, One of the things that the professor hammered down to us is that is that the United States standing by Israel is a litmus test in foreign affairs. Um, And that is a bond that will be very, very difficult to break. And so what you're seeing now is the incredibly frequent shuttle diplomacy between the two capitals um, with the United States sort of edging closer and closer towards flexing that bond, perhaps up to but not all the way at the breaking point. Um, and Israel continuing to push back. And I think both sides are going to have to erode their positions gradually in the, you know, in the near future. Uh, Julie, also fairly remarkably against the context Charles has just described, the United States has been fairly clear that it does not feel that this putative offensive into Rafa is a terribly good idea and that they would prefer it greatly if it didn't happen. Um, If it looked like, however, Israel was hell-bent on it, and certainly Benjamin Netanyahu has given no indication that he's not, is the relationship now such that if the US decided this just isn't going to happen, that the US actually could pull the plug on it? Well, I would note this. The U.S. has been very vocal on this. Biden himself has been. Blinken has been. And it was also included in that draft resolution today. Um, With that said, you know, Israel still is definitely keeping that option open. Um, I think that the U.S. to some degree has limited leverage here. I think many people think they can just pick up the phone or pull Mm. the plug on what's happening. And I think that is being very overestimated in this conflict in in the past that may have been the case. But right now is Israel is very intent on seeing what they see as a necessary operation through, and they definitely don't want to look like they're being strong-armed or um, handled, so to speak, by the United States. So um, obviously everyone is pushing for the hostage release before this offensive would potentially take place. But if that doesn't happen, um, I don't think the U.S. would be able to um, just stop Israel at this point. I will note the U.S. has not... Despite the change in rhetoric, they haven't changed in terms of um, holding back on military aid to Israel, mm-hmm. anything actually tangible. Um, if they started doing that, that increases the pressure. But even that, to me, would not um, would not really stop Israel completely at this moment, given their commitment to this mission. Well, on that thought, Charles, I do wonder, and I may well be overthinking this, but is the United States also trying 
to give Israel a little bit of room for manoeuvre here because we would be in a very, very weird place, would we not, if the US had actually waved through Algeria's resolution, if the UN Security Council had therefore passed a resolution demanding a ceasefire, which is legally binding, and then Israel had ploughed on anyway. All of those outcomes would have put both countries, but particularly the United States, in a very, very difficult position. You're not overthinking it in the slightest. Um, And it would have been very unusual for the United States not to have exercised its veto at the Security Council. I mean, the United States... You know, a tiny bit of background research shows that the, that the United States has used its veto at the Security Council on re- resolutions critical of Israel 45 times up until this one. Mm. So um, I think this is something that you can expect. And again, it's this, this is about sticking to the principles of, of foreign policy. And if this had been allowed to go through, this would have been a real shocker. Well, we will doubtless have more on that in coming days. But here in London, the UK's High Court has been holding the second and final day of the extradition hearing of Julian Assange. The United States wants him in an American dock to answer charges of espionage pertaining to the release of thousands of classified diplomatic and military documents by WikiLeaks. Assange has been in British custody since 2019, following a seven-year self-sequestration sequestration? Right the second time. In the Ecuadorian embassy in London, this hearing is Assange's appeal against an earlier decision that he could be extradited to the United States. Um, Charles, first of all, Assange is one of those people I think that a tactful obituarist would describe as um, one who divides opinions. Um, Where are you on him generally? Oh, uh, sequestration, that's when you ride around on horseback, is that that's right? Near um, enough. Okay, so I think the situation is gradually or maybe even rapidly descending into farce. Mm. Um, you know, threatening to commit suicide if you're extradited, um, comparing yourself, by the way, to Navalny um, is a major stretch. Uh, which people are doing now. Um, There is apparently now also a Russian artist who's got $45 million worth of precious art in a vault somewhere threatening to torch it all if Assange dies in prison, um, claiming that you're a journalist. Um, You know, let's talk about serious journalists who are in trouble. I mean, this guy is no Evan Gershkovich, um, who's in jail in Russia on trumped up charges. Um, You know, somebody who spent Seven years, as you said, um, in the Ecuadorian embassy and apparently was, by all accounts, a fairly lousy tenant, Um, you know, go to the U.S. um, for all of its numerous flaws, for all of its many flaws. The United States justice system is one of the most transparent justice systems in the world. People who are supporting him can file amicus briefs and he'll have a lawyer to defend him. And, you know, he can count on one of the world's more fair judicial systems. Just get it over with and go. There's a there is an issue here, I think, uh, Julie, with conflating what people may think of Assange personally and his more excitable fan club uh, with the merits of the case. Um, and one thing that does seem a bit odd is that the US even has any jurisdiction in this uh, story at all. Julian Assange is an Australian citizen. He is resident in the United Kingdom. It does seem a bit weird on the face of it that the United States is entitled to apparently just 
pluck him up uh, and drop him where they want him. Yeah, I would say there's a lot of different layers to this case. And um, for a while, the U.S. did uh, kind of uh, avoid trying to bring this to trial. And the Obama administration you know, passed on it. Um, and it, it wasn't until 2019 that charges were actually kind of kind of pushed for this extradition. Um, and I would say it is um, it is unusual the U.S. is using the Espionage Act for um, for the charges that that would that would uh, that would bring Assange back, and that and that is why they feel they have um, purview over this. Is this idea that it was um, in in an, a security and espionage kind of situation? But I would say the pushback that I've seen the strongest is even people who. Um, you know, really abhor Assange personally, um, just feel this could cause real questions around free speech and especially mm-hmm. around journalists and who you count as a journalist or not, if someone publishes something. So to what degree was he someone who was um, actually um, uh, withdrawing classified information as opposed to just publishing it? So it does raise some questions for the press and for free speech, even though I think um, many of us have been quite um, disgusted by some of his comments and, and things like that that he has, has, has perhaps done. Um, but uh, but I, I do think there's a lot of different layers to this, the legal question, the personal question, the political question. I mean, this is quite fun for me as also an Australian citizen resident in the United Kingdom to have two Americans at the table I can beat up over this. But, Charles, it, it is a bit rich, is it not, for the United States to assert jurisdiction over this case and then say, oh, and by the way, if we get him back here, the First Amendment doesn't apply to him because he's not a citizen. Uh, um, Julian Assange is, is accused of committing a crime in the United States. Mm. Um, and the terms of extradition is that if the, if the crime that he's accused of in the United States has an equivalent in the criminal code in the country where he is currently resident, then he's got to be extradited. Um, and, you know, then you move on to does the United Kingdom really, really want to sort of anger the United States by refusing extradition at a moment like this? Do they want to do this now? Do they want to do it when Trump or if Trump becomes the president in November? Um, you know, this is something that, you know, jurisdiction is very much a question. But, you know, there are we live in a society that's based on the rule of law. Um, the United States is accusing this individual of breaking the law. There's got to be a judicial process that sort of winds this out one way or the other. Uh, Julie, just finally on this, you did, did sort of suggest that uh, the Obama administration seemed quite keen uh, to take a pass on this as far as it possibly could. I'm not sure what the actual legal niceties of this would be, but would there be any real downside right now for the United States and its future security in just saying, you know what, I think we've probably made our point, Mr. Assange, let's like, let's drop it. Well, I think there are some in the Justice Department who would like to do that. And I think that's certainly the international sentiment. Right now, for the particular moment that we're in, it's a bit tricky for Biden's Justice Department, while they're also pursuing these investigations into classified documents um, with Trump and these kinds of investigations, to, to make sure that you're looking like all classified documents cases matter and we try them all equally. So I do think there's some sense of pressure with that, even though, again, the, um, the initial charges are brought up under uh, the Trump administration. But the Justice Department is trying to see that through, I think, for political reasons as well. Julie Norman and Charles Hecker, thank you both for the moment. We will have more from you shortly. Last week's Munich Security Conference was inadvertently gifted its theme by Donald Trump's outburst to the effect that he would cheerfully wave Russia into any NATO country which had displeased him. Among the Munich delegates for whom this prospect poses dilemmas which are not merely theoretical is the EU's most senior military figure, the chair of the European Union Military Committee, currently the Austrian 
Austrian General Robert Brieger. I spoke to General Brieger in Munich. I began by asking if Europe does need to start thinking about how it can defend itself without necessarily relying on the United States. I speak from the perspective of the European Union External Action Service. And uh, I think that uh, the intent of Europe to weaken dependencies and to be more self-sustainable when it comes to security and defense is, is rightful. On the other hand, I think that the transatlantic relationship will remain crucial for European security and NATO will remain the first responder when it comes to collective defense. On the other hand, we have to distinct uh, between political announcements and what's then going to happen in reality. So I think it should be it should work in as, as an incentive for European decision makers to do more, but to do it still collectively with, with our partners abroad. Is there still difficulty within the EU in working collectively in military terms? Are people still jealously guarding their own militaries, their own industries? Is that still too big a problem? Well, it, it remains some sort of problem, although we, we made some really important steps forward, especially since the full-scale invasion of Russia to Ukraine. So I, I think it really worked as a wake-up call for Europeans that we need not only to invest more, but to do it in a more smart way in order to promote collaborative defense spending, common projects, and with that also strengthening the defense industrial basis of Europe. To become more resilient and uh, more fit for future challenges. But to bring that down to one particular example, this idea of the EU having a, a viable rapid deployment capacity, and it's and it's only being talked about as maybe one brigade, five thousand troops, which does not seem like a huge ask. But how far are we from that being a reality? Well, it will be ready. We speak of full operational capability next year in 2025. It's true, it's the core of brigade-sized land forces, but it's also combined with air and maritime components as well as strategic enablers. We are working on that, that these troops will be ready. They have had their first exercise last autumn in Spain. This year there will be a preparatory exercise in Germany in November. And I'm optimistic that member states will buy into this roster in order to have the troops ready when they are needed for crisis management outside the European continent. Although we know that there is still the issue of a relative complex decision-making process amongst 27 who in any case have to agree anonymously on a common decision. But is it not actually quite weird that there isn't already such a thing? I mean, I know there is a, a precedent. There was Euro 4, which I think was Italy, Spain, France and Portugal, which was deployed to the Balkans a few times, but then wound up in 2012. This has been a recurring problem with the, the EU in military terms, hasn't it? The, the fact that it can't figure out ways to cooperate in the long term. Yeah, I, I think politicians will have to tackle this problem and there are still already discussions on ease the decision-making process, perhaps with a majority decision and not in any case an anonymous decision. 
on the other hand, we have also to create incentives for member states to agree on a common solution when it comes to a military answer to, to crisis tackling European interests. And there is, for instance, that we take over costs, partly funding, let's say, transportation, accommodation of troops, and that we also pay partly for common exercises, because for every chief of defense amongst European member states, and I think it's it's the same in, in the UK, the first interest is, of course, the build-up of their own armed forces. But we also need the notion that our armed forces are, even from the, from the big players, France, Germany, partly Italy, Poland, are not capable of respond to a major crisis. So we have to, to stick together and found a common approach. You spoke earlier of, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine two years ago being a wake-up call, and a, and a lot of people, both in military and political circles, have said much the same. But how much of a wake-up call do you think it should be? I mean, certainly in military circles, has it reignited conversations about the idea of a common European army or a broader European nuclear deterrent which isn't just in the the hands of the United Kingdom and France? Or I guess within the EU context now, just in the hands of France? Uh, Well, our thinking now focuses on the next steps to be implemented, which is a bigger integration of European armed forces, fostering the ability to jointly operate, and European army as such... uh, Pending to the degree of integration the Union will reach in the, let's say, future, I wouldn't exclude it, but it's not a priority of our activities now. Now we work on on the next steps ahead of us, integrating the armed forces, developing common processes, harmonizing the tactical and operational uh, concepts. And and this is, I think, a first-hand answer for the challenges ahead of us. Just finally, then, I I have to ask, as as an Austrian officer as you are, and I know that this is not a decision that will or should be made by the military, but Austria remains outside NATO. From a strictly military perspective, do you think there is a value to that of Europe having still one significant country, other than Switzerland, I guess, which is a special case of its own, that stays outside NATO? Well, amongst the European Union, it are four countries, including Ireland, Malta and Cyprus and my country. From a pure military standpoint, I think Many arguments are enforcing a a complete integration in in a defense alliance, and this is logically NATO. On the other hand, it's a political decision, and it's also a big role in political decision, domestic political decision, plays uh, the role of the public opinion. In in my country, about uh, 70% of Uh, The public is of the opinion that neutrality is averse uh, preserving our security as uh, not politically neutral, but not allowing foreign forces to have their installations in in Austria and not uh, be included in a war. So as an officer, I have to acknowledge that. And for my personal function as a chairman of the military committee, it has some advantages to come from a rather 
small but still capable country, which is neutral by its constitution, because it enforces me to, yes, better harmonize the different standpoints of, of the big players. So this, this is not, not any time a disadvantage. It could also be fostering fruitful procedures. That was the chair of the European Union Military Committee, the Austrian General Robert Brigger. Uh, let's bring our panel back in and two Americans again uh, to answer for their country's incipient treachery. Um, Julie, <laughs> can, I mean, Europe should be able to stand up for itself. Obviously, it should be able to. It is a huge population, enormously economically powerful, etc. The question, obviously, is can it? Yeah, I mean, this has been a conversation for a long time, and it's obviously really uh, coming to the fore now, especially after Trump's comments uh, the other week about um, about NATO and whatnot. I mean, there's a couple of different things here. One, uh, European countries have been increasing defense spending, especially in the wake of the Ukraine war, and I do think that will continue to some degree. Um, but there is a, a trade-off, and just as um, you know, just as in the U.S., if you're paying more for defense, that means there's less to go into other things in your country, and that means domestically that that increase can be difficult. Um, the other thing is just the U.S. still, I would say, has um, not only the strong military presence, but really has the nuclear umbrella that has uh, been so important for Europe. And that piece is going to be very difficult to um, upscale and replicate to any kind of meaningful way if the U.S. was just completely out. So I, I think right now that dependence is still going to be there. But I do think it's um, important that European states are starting to think about other arrangements. And my guess is some of those might start being more bilateral or trilateral rather than all of Europe, say, a, you know, France-UK partnership to start and these kinds of things with, with countries that are really invested in that side of things. Uh, on the subject of the nuclear umbrella, Charles, arguably missing a couple of spokes. Yeah, things didn't go very well with the test firing of a Trident missile, which is the UK's nuclear deterrent. And, you know, we're in this geopolitical period where deterrence or at least in theory, is supposed to be more important than ever before, although it certainly hasn't stopped certain things from happening all over the world. But um, and, and moreover, we're sort of supposed to be thinking about what we're deterring and what we're deterring it with, because it some, sometimes we're told by people who want us to spend more on defense that we're supposed to be spending money on tanks and missiles. And everyone says, no, no, no. Everyone else says, no, no, no. The you know, conflict of the future isn't tanks and missiles. It's, it's, it's cyberspace. So let's spend our money there. Um, in any case... Um, NATO's enemies, the West's enemies, um, and I might have a specific country where it's very cold right now in mind, um, will love the fact that this didn't go very well um, because it speaks to the level of preparedness of the deterrence. Um, you know, we had a good giggle when Russia really um, sort of messed up in the first few days of the invasion of Ukraine and, de and decided or discovered rather that Real war is different from war exercises. Um, and now the laugh is a little bit on us because Russia must be looking at this and giggling up their sleeves thinking, well, you know, they think they've got a strong deterrent, but they probably don't. Well, to the United States, you'll be both delighted to hear. Uh, today in Maryland, the annual Conservative Political Action Conference, or CPAC, gets underway, celebrates indeed its 50th anniversary. CPAC's inaugural keynote speech back in 1974 was delivered by then-California Governor Ronald Reagan. It was where he unveiled his resonant image of America with apologies to turnip-chewing Puritan weirdo John Winthrop as a shining city on a 
the hill. Half a century later, CPAC is largely attended by people who would chase Reagan to the city limits at Pitchfork Point, damned for some sort of treacherous pinko sellout. Julie, are, are you sorry <laughs> not to be there? Are you are you sitting here in our studio in London wishing you were in Maryland at oh, CPAC? Always. I mean, that's why I have my MAGA hat on. You know, people can't <laughs> see that. But um, yeah, I mean, CPAC, it's, it's really extraordinary, actually, how um, the nature of CPAC has shifted in recent years and under Trump, just as much of the conservative movement and Republican Party has changed under him. But it really has become more of a... Um, a Trump spectacle and rally and uh, has become much more about him than about conservatism in America. So there really has been a big shift. Um, there's different things I think people will be watching this time around. I think I'm I'm very curious about the straw poll for the vice presidential, a potential vice presidential mm. candidate that might uh, run with Trump, and um, and many of those individuals are um, kind of on on parade with him uh, at CPAC, as I understand. It has the well one of the ways it has evolved, Charles. That it is no longer uh, just about American conservatism. It has become the locus of what. CPAC attendees hope will be an international movement. I believe uh, Hungary's Prime Minister Viktor Orban attended last year. I'm not sure if he's going this year, but among the guests this year are Liz Truss, who listeners may recall being Prime Minister of the United Kingdom for an interim, uh, Nayib Bukele, the President of El Salvador, Nigel Farage, who is Nigel Farage, and Javier Malay, uh, the President of Argentina. D- do you actually see this as the... Uh, the locus of a global movement. So you could have just stopped right there at Liz Truss, <laughs> and and that really would have said it all. Um, look, there is clearly sort of a new sort of pace and scope to sort of national sovereignty and, you know, certain types of global conservatism and democracy is in trouble globally. More than 50% of the world now is led by authoritarians like um, Viktor Orban. So it may be what they're trying to do is stitch together something international. Um, now that this is an election year, I think I'm more with Julie, and that is that this is going to be a sort of Broadway caliber production of of the vice president sweepstakes. I mean, at least Stefanik is there. Um, Christy Nome is there. Um, J.D. Vance is there, except he's probably in the running for secretary of state more than vice president. Um, and so that's really what this is about. Um, you know, Liz Truss, I think just like she was at the conservative conference here last year, she's a, a bit of a sideshow. And they do still host, incredibly, Julie, a Ronald Reagan memorial dinner. And I, I speak as somebody who I suspect, had I been a citizen and around at the time, would possibly not have voted for President Reagan. But nevertheless, he would be baffled by CPAC now, wouldn't he? he I'm assuming they, assuming they even let him in. Um, but but he, he would be uh, boggled by what American conservatism has turned into because say whatever else you will about President Reagan and you're probably going to be right, but his whole thing was, was optimism. It was about the bettering of America. It was about exporting the idea of America, whereas conservatism has now become morbidly obsessed with the idea of American decline. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, Reagan is invoked so much by MAGA, by the new right, and um, in reality, most of what their positions and what they stand for, and as you said, just their whole vibe is very un-Reagan-esque in general. But I think it does play into that whole um, nostalgia element, which has become um, so uh, so rampant in U.S. politics. And again, especially on the right, is this, this sense of the glory days, the 1980s, the Reagan era, even if the politics that most of the party is espousing now has moved on significantly from 
from that so that it's almost unrecognisable. He, he would currently have less chance of getting the Republican nomination for vice president than I do. <laughs> and, and I don't like my chances terribly much. Um, just, just before we move off this one, Charles, there is another subplot of the gathering presidential campaign we should look at. These are reports that Joe Biden actually has a significant cash advantage uh, over Donald Trump at the moment, though Biden is, of course, not really fighting a primary worthy of the name. One might argue that Trump isn't either. But nonetheless, does that tell us anything? Because there is a conventional wisdom in American presidential elections that having more money than the other bloke is a considerable advantage. There is that conventional wisdom, and it's not just in presidential elections. It's in elections all the way up and down the ballot that money and victory track very closely together, um, with the recent exception of Hillary Clinton and Mm -hmm. Donald Trump, because she outspent him by a country mile. And we all know how that ended. Um, what, what, the, what we're seeing right now is that donors to Trump, individual donors to the Trump campaign are, are, are dropping and falling off um, quite precipitously and that individual donors to Biden are actually on the upswing. Um, whether that means um, that he's going to win um, and how much those individual donors give to the campaign has yet to be seen. What we also know is that Donald Trump is spending a lot of his campaign money on his legal problems. Hmm. Um, I did a tiny bit of research into U.S. campaign law until I lost the will to live, <laughs> um, which that was something about three minutes. Um, and he can do this under certain circumstances. It is legal for him to spend the money that people contribute to his campaign on his legal costs under certain circumstances. Um, he's got a lot of money to spend. So, you know, we'll see. He has a lot of money to pay as well. He is on the hook for about $440 million in legal judgments, and that's not including whatever he's paying his lawyers. And I have to say, whatever he's paying his lawyers doesn't seem to be enough. No, and frankly, I think a lot of his lawyers are suing him for overdue invoices. So um, he's going to have to settle up with his... Uh, debtors all across the board and take money from wherever he can get it. He's going to have to sell a lot of $400 pairs of shoes to pay all that off. Uh, (laughs) But just finally on this, Julie, is it going to come down to, or is a big part of it going to come down to, whether or not his gathering legal difficulties, and it's not at all impossible that he may have been convicted of a fairly serious crime by the time America votes, Is it going to come down to whether that repels donors or actually attracts them? Because you can see how the latter could happen. Oh, the latter has definitely happened. I mean, that's one reason why he is getting so much of the support um, in terms of votes, but also in terms of finances. And indeed, even though it looks like he's taking such a financial hit from these court cases, he's been able to use a lot of the campaign, um, the money raised for his campaign, essentially to be able to pay off some of this. So it's uh, in some ways all this has worked to his advantage. Well, Well, back to London, finally, and exciting news for what may be the city's most prominent yet most secretive landmark. The BT Tower, previously the Post Office Tower, was opened in 1965, a spindly symbol of what the UK's Prime Minister of the period, Harold Wilson, eulogised as the white heat of technology. The tower was not originally purely utilitarian. Among the communications kit was a revolving restaurant, though this was blown up in 1971 either by the IRA or one of those tedious gangs of anarchists who were the style at the time and the public were eventually disbarred. Now, however, the tower has been sold to the MCR group who plan to turn it into a hotel. Charles, would you stay there? Um, In a second. Um, I I will be the first in line. Um, The the BT Tower is this object of complete fascination. Um, London is not a very vertical 
city. It is not. And the, the BT Tower is one of its more vertical elements. And it's so, especially in that part of London, in the middle of Fitzrovia. Well, precisely right. And 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 so and the fact that it used to be open to the public with a restaurant on the top and has now been closed for years and years um, only makes you even more curious. In fact, as you walk out of the studios of Monocle and you're heading towards the tube in certain directions, you go right by it. And you have no idea what's going on inside. I can't wait to find out. Um, this was a great story. I mean, I watched it sort of unfold over the day. And there was this great glee when it was announced that it was going to become a hotel, which will be partly open to the public. And then everybody just crashed when they found out that it was under the responsibility of Thomas Heatherwick, um, who's known for building in New York something that is referred to as the donor kebab. <laughs> <laughs> um, Julie, are you excited by this? Yeah, I mean, why not? I will say, like, the VT Tower, it's one of those things, every time I have visitors to London, they're like, what's that thing? I'm like, I don't know. It's some, like, communication thing, I guess. Like, it was just, like, I never really knew what it was doing there. So now I'm just like, (laughs) oh, it's going to be a hotel. Like, I love repurposing. Why not? The Monocle Daily, informative and entertaining. Uh, (laughs) I I, I did want to ask you both finally in turn, Charles, I'll start start with you. What, What is the oddest building you have ever known of or perhaps stayed in that has been repurposed as a hotel? I, I did want to mention, I didn't stay there. I went there to meet the people who ran it because I thought they might be interesting for a profile of the city of Ljubljana, which is where I was at the time. Lovely place. Cannot recommend it enough. Uh, but there is a, a youth hostel has been made out of what was a military prison. Um, and the thing was that they said... All jokes aside, um, it's actually really sensible because the rooms are the right size for a youth hostel. The walls are really thick, so that it's a very well-made building. So the rooms are very quiet and peaceful and cool as well. Um, once you kind of get past the ah aspect, it, it works pretty well. Yeah, there seems to be a thing for reconverting prisons because that's just happened in Philadelphia, where, where there's this historic prison that, that nobody would really ever want to stay in if they had to. Um, but now that you get to make a choice about it, um, people are having weddings in this prison in Philadelphia, and, and apparently there are these glorious events. Um, the, the, the best man speeches would write themselves, certainly. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, I, I think the, the, the strangest place... I, so I took my dear old dad on a tour of Scotland that happened to, by very bad planning, coincide with the Six Nations Cup in Edinburgh. Hmm. And there was absolutely no place on all of Scottish territory to stay except in an old bank that hmm. had been reconverted into a hotel. And it was one of the least comfortable places I've ever stayed. Again, though, thick walls. Vault. Right. You can make all the noise you like and, and, and you would never wake the neighbors. But um, it was a kind of haphazard repurposing and the rooms were all a bit I don't, not fit for purpose. Uh, Julie, have you ever stayed anywhere with a notably peculiar history? Well, on the prison thing, I haven't stayed here, but the, um, speaking of Belfast, the Crumlin Road Jail, they do the weddings and things there also. I don't think they do hotel, but you can get married and stuff there, which is very funny to me. Um, yeah, I, mine is a little bit different. When I when I was doing field work in the West Bank, um, my what I thought was going to be like an Airbnb thing was, um, was a goat shed, actually, um, still with, with the goats around it. So um, I, there, they put a little bed in the shed and everything, but I, I came out smelling like goat for like a month so but, but were, they were, were very kind were there goats in the room with you no but they would stick up their head and you can see them out the window and stuff so i i, I learned to love them I, I did stay in a hotel in hebden bridge once uh in the north of england i of the party of three of us who were there mercifully did not get the room directly overlooking the piggery <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Julie Norman and Charles Hecker, thank you both for joining us. That is all for this edition of The Daily. It was produced by Chris Chermack and researched by Neoma Ekwe. Our sound engineer was Tamsin Howard. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>